0: Well, thank you, Tom, for your uh, effort and preparation in that and guiding us in worship this morning. And thank you, Sound Booth, as well, for that quick little curveball and adjustment there. And I appreciate that uh, God sees the heart of our worship and as we all get uh, kind of in sync uh, uh, today as well. And um, sometimes a morning service can be an opportunity to work out some of those kinks and then. Uh, you can come back for the second service as well and hear all that again if you'd like. So, But Tom, we appreciate your work. And if you would, uh, make your way to the book of Philippians. As you are uh, making your way there, I think you would um, agree with me that loving others God's way is easier said than done, is it not? And so uh, We know that sometimes our frail expressions of love for others, love for fellow man, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, do not always achieve the desired ends that we would foresee. Sometimes, despite our best intentions, our efforts can even uh, backfire at times. And this causes us to conclude that love and love for others can be a very challenging endeavor. So challenging that many books have been written on the topic on how to love others well. And, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the better book, books that has been written is a book by Gary Chapman entitled Love Languages. Some of you may have read that and maybe even have it on your shelves. In this book, the premise is such that each Individual has his or her own love language, as it were, a language, a a way of expressing love one for another and a way of receiving love. And some of those love languages he lists in that book are words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch and closeness, gift giving, acts of service, acts of kindness, and many have elaborated on these topics, uh, offering us more, and we find all of these things to be true expressions of God's love, how to give it and how to receive it. And the key behind the book is that uh, your own love language may not necessarily be your partners, your friends, your spouse, whatever the case may be, and so it is important to learn that love language to properly express it. And while this book is helpful, it causes us to conclude that love with its manifold expressions can be a very complicated endeavor. The Apostle Paul would resonate with this, for in Romans twelve nine, he calls us all as Christians to love without hypocrisy, meaning that in our very expressions of love, in our efforts to love, we can also at times be hypocritical in that love. And so it is a very challenging, challenging idea of love stated before us today. topic that we've been studying for the last week or so, in Philippians 1, beginning in verse 9. Paul also writes to this topic for us, beginning in verse 9, when he writes, "...and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ." having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And we began this text last week, and we introduced it saying that uh, there are three elements found within this text, within Paul's prayer here, that speak of this issue of love. And when we consider them realistically, we will develop a spiritually discerning love about ourselves. And we began last week by introducing a couple of those priorities. If you have your bulletin with you there, you will see that last week we began with the priority of the prayer. The priority itself is that we would have love. And that this love would be an abounding love. And that this love would be an informed love. A a love that abounds still more and more, but in real knowledge and all discernment. And also being a discerning love. And that is really Paul's priority for praying for these Philippian believers. But we also saw that there's a purpose for this prayer. There's a reason he's praying this on behalf of the Philippians. And the purpose is also found in verses 9 to 11. It says in, in verse 10 so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Paul is giving us one of several purposes that appear in his prayer. And the first is that we be people of excellence. We talked about this last week, about how excellence is that aspect of being distinguished and the ability to distinguish between things which are good, things which are better, things which are best. And you recall that if you were here. And you will recall that I shared from my own life various aspects of life, that responsibilities that I have and that I'm engaged in, in an effort to show you that you also undoubtedly have different areas in your life where you have to approve the things that are excellent, and that you have to make decisions and you have to make prioritizations in your life to fulfill this aspect of abounding love and approving excellent things. And I I just thought of a couple of others even. I talked about some of the uh, maybe professional roles that I'm involved in right now, and I thought even in preparation of this sermon today that, you know, the, the whole idea of sermon preparation itself, it also falls under this priority of discerning the things which are excellent and only bringing that which is going to be best and most suitable and most fitting and most helpful to you each Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. And I have to weigh this in my preparation. It's not so much an issue of, oh, what am I going to talk about today? Not at all. It's actually, what am I not going to talk about today? It's not an issue of what am I going to bring into the pulpit this morning for these godly saints. It is an issue of what am I going to leave out of the pulpit and not bring in. And if you knew just how much material, content, good, understandings of the scripture, theology, whatever, that I leave out and I leave home, you would suspect that uh, you are not getting your money's worth in me. For example, today I have three little half sheets of paper here. These are my sermon notes for today. And that may seem like a decent amount of material, but you'll need to know that I've left about eight of them at home realizing "Ah, it's just not going to happen. And when I step into the pulpit, it feels sometimes like I'm stepping into the boxing ring a little bit. Not with you as my opponents, but with that clock as my opponent. Uh, That clock speaks to me and batters me every second of the sermon saying you are, you know, one hit closer to the bell ringing. And the fact is, is I love the clock. Please don't make the clock disappear. I need the clock. But I have a tenuous relationship with the clock because I have a certain agenda that needs to be accomplished and the clock does as well. And so a little fun way to illustrate that, but this can be illustrated in many different areas, discerning the things that are excellent in your life, and in my life, and what you give your time to. I thought of the issues of church life in general as well. It is it is a constant battle of balancing resources over needs, and we know this. This is life. This is true of your own budget as well as perhaps a church budget, and when you look at missionaries, and the needs of pastors, and the needs of teachers, and the needs of, of, a, of a, a flourishing worship program, and, and all of the things that make church church, and the light bill to shine lights so that we can have uh, social interaction and fellowship with one another. And not to mention things like the reduction of debt or even the exciting new idea of a, of a new sanctuary one day. And so all of these things are priorities over and against the, the needs that are, are, are constantly surrounding us. And I often think of the parachurch organizations as well, those organizations outside the church. Interestingly enough, with parachurch organizations, parachurch means alongside of the church, these ministries that occur. And there was a day when the parachurch organization was in fact a parachurch organization designed to come alongside and to strengthen and encourage and and contribute strength to the hands of the church to make it flourish even stronger. But if you've noticed Recently, and I don't mean COVID recently, but I say in the last five years or so. The parachurch organizations, if we are not careful, can become also a drain to the church's resources, taking resources away for good things, for sometimes better things. But when we question the purpose of the church, sometimes we have to question and discern is it for the best of things, things that are not wrong, things that are not bad, but are they best? And it takes discernment to apply that. Well, I could go on ad infinitum ad nauseum with all of the examples of ways that we must prioritize things and discern the things that are excellent. But I want to move into this second area here under the purpose of this prayer. The first of all, of course, you've, you've gotten this, that, that, that we would be a people of excellence. That's clear. That point's been made. But I want to stress the fact as to the why behind this point. And that leads us to point B here under the purpose, not only should we be people of excellence, but we should also be people of ethics. Did you know that there is a connection to our ability to discern the things which are excellent? There is a connection to our integrity in this regard. There is an intimate connection between this, and he says it right here in the next portion of this verse, verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. We have a responsibility in the process of discerning the things which are excellent to be sincere, to be a people of integrity, a people of ethics. This word sincerity is a a fascinating word here. The word means to be pure, to be unmixed and uncontaminated, unsullied by the world. It, It means to be tested as genuine, and note this, to be approved by the exacting standards of sunlight, of sunlight, of, of bringing something into the light and having it be examined really by the sun. This is the sincerity that you must strive for in your discerning love, the excellency of it. This word sincerity is very interesting here. It is from the Latin, uh, the Latin derivation, a word that you may sound, it may sound familiar to you, it is called sinicera. Sinicera, sounds like our English word what? Sincerity, sincere. And this Latin word is, is interesting because uh, the sin in Latin means without, and the sera, C-E-R-A, means wax. And the word has a, an inherent meaning of that which is without wax. Now what does this mean? Well, you have to know a little bit about ancient history and ancient pottery techniques actually. and a potter would uh, you know form and shape uh, clay pots in ancient time and, and he would fire them uh, so that they would become strong and and eventually um, you know through Use or misuse or dropping in some cases uh, some of those clay pots they would fall to the ground or for whatever would would cause it and they would they would be caused to become cracked, and an unscrupulous potter salesman whatever would then find wax kind of like modern day bondo for any of you who've ever done bodywork, and they would fill that pottery piece with wax. And then they would glaze it over with beautiful paint. And so they would put it on the the shelf and sell it as whole, only to find out when you bring it home and put water in it and put it on the stove that the wax would melt, the paint would come through, and you would realize that you have a cracked pot. And a pot that was without wax was stamped by its owner as sinacera. Meaning this is a sincere, this pot has integrity. This pot has a wholeness about it. And nothing can be hidden here. And and so this is the idea of sincera, that we do not have aspects of our lives that, that are hidden and are cracked deep within only to be smoothed over with wax and a nice shiny veneer when the substructure underneath has been compromised. This is the idea of being sincere and without wax. We don't carry false facades over us. We don't carry false pretenses. Now we know from 2 Corinthians 4, 7 that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Isn't that interesting language that the apostle uses? We understand the treasure of the gospel really is carried by us who are earthen vessels. We are clay pots and we do have cracks. It's not that we don't have cracks and that we're completely free from cracks but we are free from that fake wax that pretends that lives a life of pretentiousness that we don't and we're good and everything's shiny and yet the foundation is crumbling this is the idea behind this word and this is what paul is calling us to be people of sincerity people of ethics and this is humbling to us no doubt but it is also a caution that we too must have the stamp of God's divine sincerity upon us, as clay pl- as clay pots. We will have flaws, but we are not the people who gloss over those flaws. Second Corinthians two seventeen speaks to this uh, very topic. in In that book, the Apostle Paul is is writing, really defending his integrity. And in uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17, we read, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God. But as from, here's our word again, sincerity. But as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. You can see this man is living his life in the sight of Christ, in the sight of God, speaking from sincerity, not using the word of God as a means of gain or profit or trying to sell you some bill of goods that later when you take it home, you're going to realize it's nothing more than a cracked pot from a crackpot. And so this calls us to spiritual integrity. And so as we leave this first uh, second little sub-point this morning, I just ask you, how are you doing with your sincerity? How are you doing with your being fashioned without wax oh I know you have cracks and I have cracks too for we carry this treasure in earthen vessels but the question is do you have wax in those cracks or are you coming into the light and letting the the sunlight really of God's word and God's truth shine upon you that we are who we say we are and what we are before all men this is the challenge for us today I want to give you just a third little sub-point under the purpose of this prayer. Why is Paul praying that these individuals have an abounding and an informed and discerning love? So that they would be excellent Philippians, that they would be ethical Philippians, and thirdly, that they would be people of exoneration. Would you write that in your notes? That they would be exonerated. This is where we're heading here, exoneration. The word is given to us here in verse 10 that... You may be sincere and blameless is the word that we're using here. Blameless until the day of Christ. Exoneration. What does this mean? It means free from harm, free from blame. It means you are not blamable in a justified accusation. It means that you are not to be found guilty in a chargeable offense is what this is. We may offend. We may offend inadvertently at times. We may offend others unwittingly at times. There's no guarantee that we will not offend, but this is a situation where it is a chargeable offense. Because of the lack of sincerity, because of the lack of integrity, you are chargeable in this offense. You are not exonerated. And what Paul is saying here is we need to live our lives in such a manner that we will be exonerated as blameless. And this is a very, very challenging task. It seems like you can't live but a day without offending somebody, and rightfully so, and so how does this all work out? Well, this just means that we are careful in our lives as we seek this standard of blamelessness. We are careful in our lives that we do not intentionally put obstacles in people's paths, obstacles which would cause them to stumble and fall, and that we would justifiably be accused of doing so. That's all this means. And it also has a reverse meaning to it that we do not stumble over obstacles that perhaps are put in our paths by others, either intentionally or unintentionally, that we too would not trip as we walk in the steps of faith, in the light of God, in godly sincerity. This idea of blamelessness just speaks to a pure inner disposition resulting in an upright outward conduct in life. So our inner disposition is that of being pure and innocent and exonerated from accusations so that our outward conduct is impacted by that. It's an inward disposition that produces an outward conduct. We see this, if you want to flip over to Philippians 2, later on we'll be studying in Philippians 2 verses 15, actually verse 14, it says, do all things without grumbling that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights shining in the world. This is a very important text for us here. And this is a reminder of us, uh, to us all that we must seek this standard of blamelessness. And it's a challenging reality because we know that there are many things in our life that we can be blamed for. And part of understanding blamelessness is not that you're a perfect individual, it does not mean that you never make a mistake ever again, but it, is, it does mean that you are found within the blameless righteousness of Christ, which we will talk about here shortly enough. But the challenge is before us. You say, Eli, this is kind of hard to do. How long, how long do we need to do this? How long do we, do we need to, to live this standard of blamelessness and sincerity? Well, the text tells us how long. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That's how long. Now, that could be this afternoon, praise God. That could be another 10 years. That could be another millennia. We don't know for sure, but for us, it means at a minimum for the rest of our lives that we are to maintain this and strive for this until the day of Christ. This is the day when all things will be made manifest, all things will be brought into the light. What has been whispered in secret will be. Pronounced, Jesus says, from the housetops, the days when our works will be evaluated by Christ himself, the shining eye, the sun really of his own eyes, evaluating our own life for their quality and determination of sincerity. In 1 Corinthians three twelve, we read some very interesting language about this day. Paul writes now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon remains, he shall receive reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet through fire. And here's that aspect of fire testing our works, testing our lives for sincerity and determination of quality and the quality of these investments being gold, silver, and precious stones in in one sense, but also this wood, hay, and stubble, these investments which really amount to nothing more than cardboard in our lives. And yet we all are called to invest and the question is what are we investing in? It's just a similar theme that we've been talking about here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see similar language. You'll recognize this in verse 9. Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, that is uh, home in the body or absent from the body, to be pleasing to him. That's our goal in life. We want to please God, please Christ. And in verse 10, it shows us why. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And this is the idea here that there is that coming day of accountability, uh, that coming day of assessment in which God will reveal this sincerity or lack thereof. In First uh, Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, you don't have to turn there, but you can jot this down. Verse uh, 23, where Paul is calling for the God of peace himself to sanctify you entirely and your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. You see, this is what his goal, this is what he's looking for, that when the Lord returns, you will be among those saints who stand in a position of exoneration. Yes, you've sinned, but how we do this is that we are found in Christ. We're we're getting somewhere here today, and, and it's amazing. We're celebrating the Lord's table as a result of this as well, because it is those who are found in Christ who are found blameless, as we will see. But this day of evaluation is coming, and we are moving at breakneck speeds for it. Uh, towards it and so we must be prepared for it by way of application this simply means this you can't be one person on Sundays and be an entirely different person on Monday through Saturdays that would not be a person of integrity that would not be a person of sincerity that would be a breach that would be a crack filled with wax and you cannot be one person in the church arena folks and be an entirely different person in the business arena, or in the finance arena, or in the leadership arena, or in the family arena. Who you are on Sunday and in church should be who you are all through the week. And it matters to God, because he's preparing his children for this great and awesome day of Christ, the day of Christ Jesus. And so if these things matter to God, how we live, and and the depth, and the nature of our sincerity, then these things ought to matter for us as well. Forgiveness does not mean freedom to live in sin. Justification by faith does not mean we jettison our faithfulness. And a true pardon will always lead to true inner purity. I'll never forget the time when Pastor MacArthur told of of a story where he had attended a conference where there were a number of attorneys present and he was speaking with this one attorney and he invited this attorney to grace church he said well why don't you come to our church and he told him what church he attended and upon hearing the name of that church this attorney said "I'll you go to grace church he says i'll never go to grace church because the most crooked attorney in the city goes to Grace Church. And I'll have nothing to do with that. Thus neutralizing his opportunity to, out, to, to reach out to this other gentleman. And so the next Sunday, Pastor MacArthur gets up in church and he tells this story to the congregation. And he says, I was at this conference. I met this attorney. I invited him to Grace Church. He said, I'll never go to that church because the most crooked attorney goes to that church. And he looked out at the congregation. He said, I don't know who you are, or where you are. But I would appreciate that you get your act together because you are making it difficult for the rest of us to maintain our Christian testimony. And there was a hush over the entire congregation of about 3,000 people. I imagine all the attorneys at Grace Church repented that day. No, I'm just kidding. I have a fond affection for attorneys at law and i have worked with them for many decades i have uh, lived with um, a wife whose father is an attorney at law and the fact is is that whatever your profession fill in the blank that we must have integrity with that or it affects how we live and it causes us to not be blameless until the day of christ well as we work through these main points we've seen Paul's priority in the prayer and abounding and informed discerning love we see his purpose of this prayer that we would be people of excellence people of integrity and people of exoneration I want to move to the third point this morning as we conclude and prepare for the Lord's table and that is the product of this prayer the product We've seen the priority and the purpose, but what is the end result here? Where where are we going? Where's the end game here? What's what's the final outcome of living a life and living a love in this way? There's two things that I want to point out in the product here, which Paul points us to, and that is godliness and glory. Godliness and glory. Let's take the first one here, godliness. Note the text in verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Godliness. This word here, uh, to be filled, is very interesting. It's plerao in Greek. It simply means to make replete, to make full, to overabound, to cram full really is what the word means, to fill up and to satisfy. This is what Paul is saying here, that the end game here is a, a level of godliness that is overflowing in your life and in the church. And that this, what we are filled with, is the fruit of righteousness. It pictures a tree laden heavily with fruit, a a bough bending over, as it were, uh, weighing heavily with all of the good, useful fruit that is upon it. This fruit is on every bough. It is akin to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. You remember the fruit of the Spirit. Well, he, he talks about the fruit of the flesh being evident. Immorality and impurity and sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of angers, dispute, dissensions, factions. He goes on and on, verse 21, and uh, he says, um, he lists more, I forewarned you that those who practice these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And I love verse 23 where it says, against these things there is no law. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so this is the idea of a life filled with the fruit of the Spirit just flowing through us so that upon every bow we're just overflowing with this fruit that is of the spirit now note that this fruit does not sprout by itself please don't think this morning well i gotta i gotta sprout some fruit today it does not sprout by itself and it is not something of the will of man this is fruit that is connected to a root you remember what jesus said in john 12 i am the vine you are the branches and because of our relationship you will bear much fruit And he also puts us on guard that says a tree is known by its fruit. A good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. It's telling us something here, folks, that there's a connection to the root that must first be in place for this. For Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't bear good fruit. Otherwise, this is just an exercise in ethics today. This is just an exercise in trying to do good and be better and and keep pulling yourself up more and more by your own bootstraps. This is a very natural fruit and outflowing of somebody who's connected to the root, which is the Spirit, which is Christ. Note here that the Apostle says that this is a fruit of righteousness. It is is that which is just, that which is right, uh, that which uh, meets the exacting standard of the righteousness of Christ. And where does this fruit come from? Well, he also tells us here, it says that we are filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. This is how we bear much fruit. This is the fruit of righteousness. It comes through Jesus Christ. So again, we are reminded it's not self-generated. It can't be self-generated. It's produced only through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, theologians refer to this fruit and this state of righteousness as an alien righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. It's not a natural righteousness. It's not something that we can whip up or create or or cause to be present in our own life. That's self-righteousness. That's human works. This is alien righteousness, and Paul also will talk about this in Philippians 3, if you want to just glance at chapter 3, and I believe it's verse 9, this, this issue of alien righteousness. He says, And may I be found in him that is in Christ. Here it is. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is a very, very important verse to any and all Christians to understand. We possess an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that is not of our own. And you'll remember all of the, the amazing righteous Self-righteous standards that he had, you know, uh, Paul, and saying, if I could put confidence in the flesh, I would be first in this. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But you know what he says? Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as rubbish for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And this is where he says, verse 9, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Very important text of scripture. I can't wait to get there, but... To, to get you there ahead of time in your understanding that this, this godliness does not come from yourself. And you may have this morning a veneer of righteousness. You may have other people fooled most of the time about your righteousness. You may have a pretty good-looking self-righteousness, but whatever righteousness you may bring to the table this morning, if it is not the alien righteousness derived from Christ, not yourself, it is a valueless, it is good for nothing, it is rubbish And you need to take the example of the Apostle Paul turning away from it. And you can turn away from it even this day. This is true godliness. This is true sincerity. This is the basis upon which you can be exonerated because you and I both know you're guilty. You and I both know you ought not be exonerated for your life, for your actions, for your deeds, for your work, for your failure in love, which all of us have. But when we come into... Christ. We come into his righteousness and we are viewed by God as perfect, perfectly exonerated and perfectly sincere. And that's the secret, that's the ticket to this aspect of godliness. And so that's really Paul's ultimate uh, outcome of this, is that we would be godly individuals, but let me just give you another one, that, that it would be glory as well. And, and the, the purpose here is not only that we be godly, but that we would bring glory to God. This is the product, rather, of Paul's prayer. The product is the glory of God. Will you note in the text here, it says that this righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, having been filled with that fruit, is to the glory and praise of God. This is all about God, and this is all about his glory. And this is really the end game, the glory of God. If you're living your life for any other reason than the glory of God, you're going to be sadly and sorely disappointed. We do not live for man's glory. We live for God's glory. And God is seeking a people who will bring him maximum glory. This is really what it's all about. In fact, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question of believers, what is the chief end of man? And it answers it as well, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It is to bring him glory. And it behooves us to see the end from the beginning. And if I could do anything with today's message, I would like to do this, that I I would show you the end game. Look away from the pulpit, look away from the church activities and all the things which crowd around us and look to the end game. The end game is glory, the glory of God. That is what we live for. That is the most important aspect of our existence, the day of Christ. This word glory is a wonderful word. It is the word doxa, doxa in the Greek. In fact, we get our word doxology from this, which uh, we will be singing the doxology later uh, in the service as we close. It's amazing how that worked together today. I did not plan that, trust me. But... A godly life brings doxa to God, and that's the end of it all. That's, that's why we're singing that at the end of the service and not at the beginning today, because all of this is culminating going somewhere with us in our minds and really in reality as well, as we seek a life to bring glory to God. First Corinthians 10:31 says, "Whatever you do. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And as a result of this, this causes us to praise him. Just note that last portion of verse 11 here. It's to the glory and praise of God, right? It's the praise of God, not the praise of man. It's to God's glory and praise. And this causes us to praise him. And and we don't whip up our praise and then say we somehow worshiped God. What, what we need here is a big view of God, a vision of God's glory, and that, is, that creates a natural response in us to praise Him. And this is what we do. We praise the Lord. We adore Him. We affirm Him. We recognize Him. We worship Him. We let His reputation thrive. And we let our reputation die if need be because it is all about him and it is not about us. And so, in conclusion, as we just summarize verses 9 through 11, we could say this that having an abounding and informed and discerning love results in us being people of excellence, people of integrity, exonerated from sin, which produces true godliness, all of which brings ultimate glory and praise to God. I hope that is descriptive of you this morning. And if not, I would simply call you to the Lord Jesus Christ where you could begin living these very truths in your life. And it is from only the Lord Jesus Christ who is the source of this possibility. I'll close by recalling a story Scene. It, it was a movie scene in the movie Lawrence of Arabia. Maybe some of you have ever seen that movie. And uh, Laurie, Lawrence of Arabia, when Lawrence was in Paris after World War I, he had a group of Arab friends that he was showing the, the wonderful sights and, and uh, different places in France. And those sites which would probably be very uh, amazing and intriguing to you and I, they, they, his, his Arab friends, friends liked them, but what they were most fascinated with was the hotel room back home, or, or back where they were staying, and not just the hotel room, but the faucets on, in the bathroom of the hotel room. That's what they were most fascinated with. And, and they couldn't believe that by simply turning these faucets, water would come out of the faucets. And they were so enamored and fascinated with how easy they could just get water at the turn of this nozzle so much that they began trying to remove them from the hotel and take them. Lawrence saw them doing this and asked, what are you doing? And they answered, if we have faucets, we will have all the water we want. (laughs) You see, it is very dry in Arabia, and it's a humorous scene. But sadly, I think a lot of people today have the same problem, do they not? They have the faucet. They have the vessel from which water wants to flow. They, they have a branch, as it were, but is that branch connected to the vine? Is, is the faucet connected to the source of, of water? And they think that by disconnecting, and they will be able to turn them on and off whenever they will. But it will be to no benefit. Nothing will come out because there's no life in them. There's no water in them, and as a result, there's no fruit in them. They are disconnected from Christ. This is why you and I must be found in Christ today. Very relevant, relevant thoughts, are they not, as we come to the Lord's table, which celebrates communion with Christ. This is a celebration today. And I want you to know that if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, you are welcome to join that celebration with us today. I'm going to say a brief prayer here as the men gather as we, uh, to, to assist in serving the elements And I want this to be an opportunity for you to enjoy not only communion with Christ, but communion with one another as well because we are all connected to that head being Christ and we are part of each other here. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for this celebration. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you that it meets our deepest needs. Heavenly Father, I thank you that um, you have condescended to come down to meet lowly and sinful creatures as ourselves and grant them the gift of forgiveness and grant them the ability of being righteous in you. Father, we come today and we confess our sins at this table today. We confess that we do have these cracks. We don't try to hide from them. We don't try to fill them with wax. We don't live our lives with this veneer, Lord. We are humble and lowly people, people of yours. And, and the only reason we can't even come today is because you are in the permanent process of healing those cracks forever, Lord. Thank you for coming to broken people, clay pots as ourselves, Lord. May we always rejoice in the truth of what this table means to us as we come into communion with your Son and communion with one another as believers, Lord. We thank you this morning. We thank you for forgiveness of sins. We thank you that we can come to this table with confidence. And Lord, that we would be blessed as a result. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus.